cliffcentral.com. All right, all right, all right. Let us do this. It is time <laughs> for Burning Platform. Is that Canton mouthing off in the background? Indeed. It is, it is indeed. <laughs> Good morning, Canton. How are you? About, He's bringing his talk, grumpy old men this into the studio. Talking about ball sacks on, on the show this morning. Jeez, guys, you know. Really? You, that was literally only about 30 seconds of the show. Yeah, and by the way, Canton, it is yeah. crucial. It needs that it needs this topic needs airing. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, I'm going to tell you before we, we get into the, the grand scheme of things. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still slightly traumatized for new, for learning a new word yesterday. What was that? It's called wake. It's called wake mezake. W A K E M E Z A K A. I'm not going to tell you what it means. Go Google it, but I've been traumatized ever since. Firstly, that it exists. And secondly, that the Japanese actually have a word for it. So, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. What a time. What, what a time to be alive. Yes. Oh, drinking alcohol from a woman's body. Is that it? Yeah, drill down into it even further. Yeah, do we, yeah, yeah, or do yeah, we yeah, have yeah. to ask Kenny Kunene? Should we just invite Kenny, Kenny and ask him? No, 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 Absolutely. no, no. This, this is this is beyond Kenny. Uh, Kenny, this is no. We'll just don't guys. tell him about it. I don't think anything's beyond Kenny. All right, let's uh, let's get into it this morning. There's a lot to talk about, and among those things, chief among them is probably the unemployment numbers that have come out. But we'll get to that in a second because the person who's brought the unemployment numbers to our attention is none other than a regular guest on the burning platform. And he is welcome as always to share his controversial points of view. And he has lots of them. He is Pumlani Majozi. How are you Pumlani? I'm well, I'm well. It's great to be here. It's great to see Kanthan. You guys, you know, we sound like we're having, we're having an exciting time here on this show. The guy's wearing a tie. You know, it's a. Yes, I, I like that. No, it's cool. I you really see, like that. Pumlani, Pumlani is one of those old school people who dresses up when he's going to uh, address all of us. I mean, he might not be wearing <laughs> pants, but from the waist up, he looks like he's very well outfitted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you, I am wearing pants, Gareth. <laughs> well, we just have to take your word for it. No, we don't want to prove it. Lady and gentlemen, uh, let's, let's get stuck into one of the underlying massive, massive problems in South Africa. One that often, uh, gets pushed under the, brushed under the carpet. People don't like to talk about it. The government has no solution for this problem. Um, it is not something the government can technically solve. They can help create the conditions for employment, but unemployment continues to plague us and you know, I spoke to someone not so long ago. In fact, Canton, you were at this lunch. It was, it was probably end of last year. And this guy said to us, because he has access to lots of uh, research and, and statistics, he says he doesn't think the unemployment number is nearly where it is because of the informal economy. And I think we must just look at the numbers first, and then I'd like to have your comments on whether you think that is a good reflection of South Africa or whether that's just the formal economy where people are actually reporting and where government is researching, you know, the tax-paying, non-cash economy. So what have we got, Pumlani? What are, what are the numbers at the moment? What are the latest unemployment numbers? Well, um, the latest unemployment numbers, they came to, there was an increase of 0.2%, um, which went to 
basically meaning that um, the, the unemployment rate rose to 32.9%. Um, so, and, and, and that, uh, that um, follows from the 32.7% that we saw at the end of last year, the last quarter. Now, um, when you look at those, that unemployment rate, that's the, what's called the official unemployment rate, right? It excludes the number of the people or the people who have given up looking for work. As soon as you account for the number of the, or the people, um, um, who have given up looking for work, the numbers of, uh, when it comes to unemployment in South Africa, they rise to plus 41%, right? I think about 42%. Right. So that right. tells you that, uh, and when you do the comparison and you look at those numbers, you do, you compare amongst South Africa's peers in the emerging markets, it were just right at the top. Um, so it highlights a very big problem that we have that from an unemployment rate, um, perspective, we are doing very badly as a country. And we have been doing, um, badly for years. It's not something new. So that was unemployment rate. When you compare it over the past year, it's been rising and rising again. Now, something very interesting, Gareth, uh, the president was speaking, um, recently, I think somewhere in Wazulu Natal, we were saying that, well, since 1994, we have created, you know, I think he said about plus, you know, plus eight million jobs or something that we have created. Yeah. What, what he didn't account for or didn't say is that actually when it comes to unemployment rates, the, the, our rates have increased in contrast to 1994. Um, he never spoke about that, but he spoke about the fact that in absolute numbers terms, he has, they have created plus, um, eight million jobs. So, I mean, it is a very big problem the soccer faces. Um, and it's something that really is, um, constraining the economy. Now, the question is to what are the issues, um, that lead to these very high unemployment rates is something that I hope we will delve into, um, this hour. Now, Pumladi, I'll just give you the very short explanation, okay? We've created 8 million jobs, and we've created 20 million more people. That's a short yeah. answer. Yeah, and, correct. And we know, we know the secret of economic growth, okay? If your economy grows at a faster rate than your population, you're going to be prosperous. If your economy grows at a slower rate than your uh, population, then, you know, we're going to be in the shit street that we're in right now. Mm. So we have a, right. a, um, so we have an economic growth that underperforms population growth. Um, and Correct. I think, uh, yes, Kandan, Kandan is right. But it also highlights because, I mean, the increase in population shouldn't automatically mean, mean that you have a higher unemployment rate. It also highlights the failure in policy as well. I don't think you can excuse them. And say that right. because of the increase in, in, in population, therefore, and then it makes sense to have higher unemployment rates. Yeah. So, Pumlani and Canton and Pumi, uh, here's the thing. If Canton is right, and I have no reason to not believe him, I mean, there's a simple definition. You can Google it if you don't believe Canton. But are we then required to decrease the population or increase the economic activity? Because no, we we've, got, around... we've got to, inc- to increase no, economic... Look, we've got to increase economic activity. India's population has been growing as a very good example, mm-hmm. but India's economic, uh, India's population growth is 2%. India's economic growth is 8%. That's a pathway to prosperity. Yes. Yeah. Right. What, what can, what can the government do? Because we're all obsessed in this country. 
with the government and rightly so because they are a, a responsible party when it comes to things like you know electricity provision for example which is definitely the single biggest factor that is inhibiting economic growth at the moment but what can they do and then we'll look at what everyone else can do what should government be doing to incentivize uh, and 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 push along this economy <laughs> they, they need to get out of the way. <laughs> Less regulation. We, we, we have um, um, masses of unemployed people, and we have minimum wage, which prices them out of the market. Uh, guys, I've, I've said for the longest time, I would rather have a scenario where in a family of five, you have five people who are earning 2,000 rand a month than one person, person earning 10,000 rand a month. Because what that is yeah. doing is that it's actually spreading the base of people who are actually employed. Because remember, most people actually live in family units. You know, we're not looking at uh, uh, single uh, uh, families where there's one breadwinner that's going out and putting food on the table. When right. you have a scenario where you're actually removing the price caps um, on uh, on labor, then you're going to have a situation where people are able to employ other people and actually get things done. Right now, the scenario that we've got, okay, let's say there's a job that's going um, for a minimum wage of, what is it currently, Pumi? It's about 3500 or something like that per month. When you have that that scenario, you have a job that's going for 3500 rand a month. You've got a woman who wants to take this job for 3500 rand a month, but she's a single mother, so she needs to pay someone to look after her child at home. Can she afford to pay the child, uh, the person looking after a child at home, three thousand five hundred a month? Absolutely not. No. Would she be? Uh, would that person looking after the child at home be willing to be there for five hundred rand a month? That that five hundred rand a month that that person's not currently getting, absolutely. But it's against the law. The inherent stupidity of when we have cheap and abundant labor but we make it expensive and therefore we make it non-abundant. It is so simple, mm-hmm. guys, to fix this. Mm-hmm. And you will you will have these academics that now pitch up from Stellenbosch right. that tell you, no, actually a minimum wage is not a problem. It does not actually hinder economic growth. Well, actually, in the first world scenario, yes. In our scenario, no. All right, but hang on, because to be the devil's advocate this morning and just push you and Pumlani in this case a little bit further, I see a couple of comments here, and most of them are not particularly pleasant. But JP says, be like China and put a quota on the number of children you can have. Now, that's ridiculous because that's backfired horribly on China. Plus, you can't have the government. Can you imagine having to apply to this government in order to have kids? I mean, come on. I wouldn't take an instruction from Cyril Ramaphosa on whether or not I can have a child or not. Would you really want that, JP? (laughs) Would you want it? Or is it one of those things that you're just saying would be okay for other people to have? Let's stop other people from having kids, but Cyril can't tell me what to do. Which is it, JP? I I really need to know. (laughs) But you know what it is, Gareth? We had this, we we had a letter from a listener a couple of weeks ago also about, (laughs) it's also about an overburdening on small businesses of regulation. Right. So it's not yes. just about minimum wage. It's, it's, it's a myriad of little regulations, most of which are, are actually almost impossible to police. 
And so what the government has done is it's made every business owner the policeman of all of that. So all of the the forms you have to fill in, all of the second, every second month, the VAT you have to submit, all of the every six months, the, the PAY, all of that over-regulation strangles the economy. Never mind the overburdening in terms of taxation for small businesses. So we are unable to unlock the potential in that space. You know, so a lot more agree? people are kind of... Do you agree with Canton on minimum wage? Say that again, please. I do think, do though, that we do need, we need guardrails. So we do need guardrails in terms of exploitation of people, too, because we have had this in the society that we live in. And it still happens. Even as there is a minimum wage in place, it still happens that there are people, uh, farm workers, there are people, we see it all the time, right, on social media with people who bring in uh, helpers into their homes and underpay them horribly and and have all of these crazy expectations of them. I think South Africans need to realize that sometimes you may think that you want to have a maid in your house, but you actually can't afford it. But all of that stuff, you know, they, and it's too simple to just say, oh, take away minimum wage, because the government still mm-hmm. has a duty to protect people. Well, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Where, where does it say the government has a duty to protect people? Is that in our constitution? Is that a law? And they, they're not currently enforcing that law at any level. I don't get any protection from this government. <laughs> Do any of you guys get protection from this government? No. Uh, come on, Pumi. Those are platforms. Yeah, so, we've got protection. No, guys, look, I wa- no, I want to say something no, about but, this, okay? Uh, no, we've got, just, we've, no, before we've got you our carry labor on. Laws. We've be- got our labor laws. That they're, is important. They are, good, they are good labor laws, okay? The CCMA process is a good process. Let's not confuse labor laws which protect the rights of workers with a minimum wage, which is defining two potential employers what their business should be able to afford. That's the difference. I'm a fan of the CCMA. I'm a fan of our labor laws. I spent the 80s as a trade unionist, guys. Come on, work with me on this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just to, yeah, for me, uh, one of the very um, uh, big issues that have been raised about South Africa's labor markets is the labor costs. When you look at the labor costs in contrast to, uh, or in comparison to other markets around the world, the developing markets. South Africa is not really the labor costs are quite are quite high. Um so that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Why are we not having a competitive um uh, labor market? And then also the the energy supply issue. Um really it has destroyed uh jobs and businesses and the net bank report that was released not long time ago highlights the damage that has been done by the energy crisis that we face in the country. So there was no way we, there's no way we can think that we are going to have good employment numbers in an environment, in an environment that is not conducive to basic things like energy supply. How do you run a business, Garrett, when electricity is off from 2 p.m. up until 5 p.m.? I mean, how do you do you that? Can't. You can never run a business in such an environment. And we cannot expect to have good, you know, job numbers in such a, a situation. So I, I think for me, it's a, it's, it's a structural, structural issue. Um, Kantan is right. I side mode Kantan when it comes to the minimum wages. I, I think then in a country with very much shocking unemployment rates to have a, a minimum wage laws, I think it's really counter. It's a counterproductive um, a step. 
You know, All one right. of the things that I... we don't consider when we talk about, and, and it's easy, what are what with, uh, Canton? Platitudes. You know, the thing is, one of the things that we don't consider when we talk about the unemployment rates that we also have in this country, and something that is completely and grossly underreported, is also the level of education that we have. So where you have a, in like our country, where only 34% of kids who start school, finish school, even if you opened a factory in Peter Maritzburg today that could hire 5,000 people or even 15,000 people, most of those young people that are sitting there unemployed, you are unable to employ them because they are undereducated even for a factory job. These, right. you know, and this is, this is the thing for me is that it is not one particular string that you have to pull and then it unravels the whole thing. Is there are right. so many complexities that we have Hang to on. consider in South Africa? That's I totally agree with you, Pumi. No, but we do have, Canton, we do have a bunch of unemployable people. Like, you know, that there are people who are so uneducated and who have such hardware problems in terms of their, 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 their brains that they probably can't do any good. They can only do damage. I mean, most of them work in politics, but we'll just leave that aside for a second. The real problem here is that we don't have a handle on the informal economy. And I think it's something worth talking about. I opened up this conversation by saying, what do you think the real number is? Do you really think it's as high as 30, 40%? Yes. Or do you? I think it's probably higher. But do you think people are just sitting around that they've given up on work, which Pumlani mentioned earlier, that they aren't even trying? Nobody's sitting around. I don't see people sitting around. I see people trying whatever they can, hustling, selling this, uh, cutting that, changing that, offering this paint job, this piece job. I see people trying really hard to do things to earn money. So trying hard to earn money is different because the thing is, the formal economy trickles down into the informal economy where we have what is our current like growth rate is 0.00001%. There is no trickle down effect. And we've also spoken a little bit um, on the show about the incredibly high salaries that certain executives get as opposed to some of their lower paid workers or even the middle paid workers no, in those that, organizations. That is, that is, the trickle-down effect. So the no. trickle-down effect does not happen as much as you... Canton made uh, made the example earlier of wanting to employ a person who's willing to take a job at the 3500 but then needs to get somebody to stay home to look after. The, that is where the trickle-down happens. The person that, you, that stays at home to look after your kid or the person that drives mm-hmm. your kid to school or does all of those... We don't have the trickle-down effect. I think the number is way higher than is being reported right now. That's why. That's why we sit here and we talk. I say it's higher. That's why we sit here and we talk about the fact that 30 30 million South Africans live on less than 20 rand a day. That's why that is the statistic. I want to keep us focused here. That's all valuable information, especially that last bit that you mentioned on how little people are living on a day. All right. But, I think to bring in the rich people at the far end of this is not going to help. I mean, it's not but going it's, to, it's not, it's not as relevant. So we've already figured out. Let's just, let's just recap where we are because I don't want us to lose our way in this conversation and end up talking about a bunch of irrelevant stuff. First of all, we admit 
Number one big problem in the economy is electricity. You can't possibly run a business. Pumlani, you contributed this one. You can't run a business where you don't have a reliable electricity supply. Number two, we have an uneducated, unemployable population. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of South Africans who are not capable of being employed in the economy because they cannot perform any useful task or service. Nothing. They are outside of it and always will be. They're basically going to be left to their own devices, which is terrifying. The third thing that we've brought up is the fact that we have laws and regulations that are onerous and cumbersome. Do you guys agree with a lot of people in the comments here who say that part of that onerous uh, red tape environment that we've created that inhibits the economy is BEEE? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the people who end up getting rich from BEE regulations are the people who are there to police the regulations. (laughs) The consultants who make sure that you have the right BEE certification. But also, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago that was signed into law by uh, Cyril Ramaphosa is also the fact that Businesses that I think are under 50 people. Is it? Is it 50 people? I think it's businesses that are under 50 people. The, the level of, um, the, the level of regulation that they are put to scrutiny is exactly the same, no matter how much they make. So you, if you have 50 people and you make 5 billion, and if you have 50 people and you make 10 million, you have the same level of scrutiny, right? So what's possible, what we're probably going to see is we're going to see a lot of businesses unbundling into smaller groups where they don't have to stick to a particular regulation around all of this BEE. And the people who suffer are always going to be the little guy. So those regulations, BEE regulations, even I, as a black woman today, I don't have a company that's a level one BEE. Because (laughs) what BEE regulations want from you is all sorts of things that you actually, if you are a small business, you actually cannot reach the status that you think you need to reach, that they tell you you need to reach. So you are kept out of the economy. Doesn't work. It maybe, maybe it could have worked if it had been implemented in a particular way all those many years ago. But where we sit today, it's just one more hurdle that people have to jump through that doesn't work. So Pumlani, what's your solution? Yeah. When it comes to be, I have said that, you know, if, if you were to, to, to repeal BE tomorrow, um, really, I doubt there would be uh, people in, in, in townships and, and, and poor communities, uh, you know, protesting against the repeal of BE. But the people who would make noise would be the elites in the media who would tell you that we need BE for X, Y reasons. Black people are still left behind and so on, you know, trying to justify <laughs> a policy that has been counter, counterproductive. So, and that alone would really be a sign to show that who is really more concerned about um, about PE? It's not the little men uh, in South Africa on the ground um, who has who has never uh, benefited anything uh, from PE. It's the elite because the elite themselves uh, have been the biggest beneficiaries of PE policies. So m- my view is that what PE has done, and I'm currently reading Andre Rater's new book, um, Truth uh, to Power, and. You know, these problems, you can see them in a company like, like, like ESCO, um, that the whole BE process was sort of repressive and constraining in terms of, um, ensuring that, uh, the company 
operates efficiently. So it has been a constraint that has repressed the economic productivity, and I think it's something that needs to be to be um, reversed um, from let our me, government. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a specific question here, everybody, because we talk about BEE, but most people don't know what the rules are. Cyril has just introduced a new rule where basically if you're a business with under 50 people, you can still employ whites. But if you're over 50 people, you're not allowed to employ a white person. I mean, it's in black and white. This is the most outrageous like, kind of discrimination we've had in 28, 30 years. This is outrageous that you, now they're telling you you cannot employ people of a specific skin color. It's really out of, that's, that's out of control. I see Calto Santos in the comments is saying, don't confuse, I think is the word that he wants to say, BE with employment equity. I think one of the things Mm -hmm. that a lot of people have missed is the fact that those broad based black economic empowerment codes, um, as they look different in different sectors, really have seven areas in which they operate. So when you talk about BE, it encompasses employment equity. So one area will be about ownership. One area will be about management and executive control. One area will be about employment equity. There is an area about um Economic, sustainable economic development. It also includes the area of, of where you spend your CSI. It also would include what they call, um, so how you spend your money. So procurement, basically how and where you spend your money. So it makes everybody the police of everybody. So if in your company you have five suppliers, you need to police those five suppliers for their BEE. And those suppliers we were talking about trickling down is and so on and so on and so forth, as a former president used Um, to say. So all of those things, (laughs) you know, so the employment equity aspect, which is the law that I was also talking about earlier, which is what... If you're 50, if you have 50 people or less, whether you make a billion or whether you make a million or 500,000, those laws are all the same for everybody. And so the employment equity component of it has been reshifted in this way. I want I'm sorry. I just want to get into specifics here. This is a, this is an absolute outrage. Here's the Employment Equity Act, list of economic sectors and all the rest of it. Much worse than I expected. Here are the affected industries. This is according to a tweet. Uh, any companies with 50 plus employees in these industries can basically have 3.5% white female and 4.5% white male employees. I mean, this is unbelievably stupid. Are we all agreed on that front? <laughs> we all do agree. <laughs> I do agree. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, uh, Gareth, I don't want to be mis, um, um, uh, my point here, and I want your your audience to to get me here. I, I am I'm very much opposed to 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 racial um, affirmative action. Right? Um, when it, I'm not against the government helping the people who are disadvantaged in the country, but what they should focus on is to help people not because of the color of their skin. Right. If you have some, some program where you, you, you want to, um, to, to, to upgrade the poem or to uplift them, don't focus on their race. 
create programs that are for everybody so that you avoid having people who are already well off benefiting from certain systems of government simply because of the color of their skin, right? So those things, I think for me, I need to be, uh, to be clear that I'm not opposed to government helping or extending a hand to people who are disadvantaged, but it should not be done uh, because of the color of their skin. Sorry. And there must be some can... criteria that use that non-racial to address the I issues. I agree with all of that. I agree with all of that, Pumlani, but I'm, I'm just absolutely gobsmacked and dumbfounded in the year 2023. Tula Singh can click his fingers and decide how many Indians, how many coloreds, and how many whites and how many blacks you, Pumi, and Canton and I can employ. I mean, this is just unbelievable. Joseph Stalin would be applauding this from the sidelines if he were alive. Hendrik Furfoot would be dancing. Hendrik Furfoot would be thrilled. This is, this is his fucking wet dream, this whole idea. And Tulas can do this with, without capriciously, without any information, without any research. He can basically say, oh, no, we've reduced that number or we've improved that number or we've increased that number with nobody telling you why, when, or wherefore. Do these people not understand how businesses work? Guys, the fundamental problem, and, you know, I keep coming back to this, we should not be pointing fingers at people like Tulas or like Ibrahim or like Praveen or uh, anyone in the lower echelon. This all should. goes back to Cyril, okay? This all goes back to Cyril. This happens under his watch with his complicity. And the way in which you fix this is by concentrating on the fact that Cyril doesn't have a clue and is allowing everyone to do whatever they want that contradicts what other departments are doing, which is why we have the absurd situation where he has to have a minister of electricity when he already has a minister of energy and a minister of public enterprises. Crazy. And all of this is uh, doing nothing but adding to the fundamental dysfunction of the state. And I think it's great. Yeah, it's not clear. It's not clear, Kantan. As to who was, I, I heard that this minister of electricity, basically, uh, they, they, it's not clear what his powers are. Um, so how to appoint a minister as a president without knowing what his powers would be? I mean, that, that shows you a, 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 um, a state that is totally confused, a state that doesn't know what it's doing. Um, and it's sad. It's very sad. I mean, it just doesn't make sense how to appoint someone without knowing what his powers will be. <laughs> you know, one of the things that Ed, Cyril, and whether Cyril knows what he's doing, there's nobody at the wheel driving. But one of the things that you see with this Employment Equity Restructuring Act, as I like to call it, is the fact that we now effectively have in Parliament, because it doesn't just go through Cabinet, these kinds of things. It has to go through the entire parliamentary process. We have a bunch of people there who don't have any new ideas, who don't have... It. So they're tinkering. They're just going back and tinkering. We had this type of a thing, and now we're shifting it a little bit. Now we're adding this. Now we're taking this away from it. They don't have new thinking to solve the problems we have at hand. And it's, and it's, I mean, Cyril being the CEO effectively is where the buck should stop. And he is the person that we should hold most accountable. But it just says to us that it's everybody in all of those seats. Don't, don't have the ideas. 
They're they not supported. fighting it back. Bring Kantan okay, in as so, a minister. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 trust me, that, that would help, but I don't think he wants the job anymore. All right, so guys, let's just move into something else because we are on Cyril, and it does kind of segue nicely into this Russia U.S. South Africa problem that we have at the moment, and they say it's all been resolved. I mean, they're telling us everything's fine, guys. Nothing to see here. As Sophie Kilimbalula, who I really follow for comic relief, but occasionally it does drive me a little bit up the wall. Uh, I saw him meeting with the U.S. Ambassador Brigitte, and uh, the two <laughs> of them seemed to be uh, in, you know, in, in good spirits. Just a couple of days ago. America accused Russia and South Africa of, of basically a bit of an arms deal on the side. South Africa supplying Russia with arms um, in their ongoing conflict with Ukraine. We've de- declared that we are neutral, that we are not taking a side in this, which is an interesting thing because we've definitely been more friendly to Russia than to Ukraine. Uh, what would the effects of any of this be? And and are any of you concerned about this? We'll start with you, Pumlani, because I have a feeling I know what Canton's going to say, although he can surprise us at the best of times. And I think I know what Pumi feels about this. What do you think? Well, um, we have said we are neutral in weights. This is my uh, uh, observation. We have said we are neutral in weights, but in, in actions, I don't think we have shown some um, that neutrality. Um, firstly, I don't believe that it's a lie that we have, um, that, um, that there were some uh, arms that were, that were given to Russia. I, given the, 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 the record of my government, uh, the NC government, it's likely that that is true. So I, I don't believe that's a lie. Um, so our, and then we had, um, we've been sort of very close in terms of the drills, um, um, that we have been doing with, with Russia. Um, not long, not long ago. So, and, um, my honest view is that we've been very much confused when it comes to foreign policy. We haven't really, um, been able to be strategic, especially given the conflicts that are going on around the world. I don't believe that we should be involved in a power struggle. That's not my sense. I, I don't believe in that because we are, I mean, it's just, it's just some that we cannot afford. But yeah, but Kumlani, I just need to climb in at, at, at this point, yeah. okay? We shouldn't be discussing beliefs. We should be discussing facts. So just tell me what facts you have relating to this thing, because I think that's a crucial thing for us. We spend far too much time talking about what we believe, what we believe, instead of actually saying, mm-hmm. this is what happened, here's why it's a problem, and here's how we go about fixing it. So what are the facts around this matter? Okay, so for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, my honest view is that it's not only just um, the Ramaphosa administration, right? Even under Jacob Zuma, so Africa has sided more with with um, with uh, with uh, with with Russia and China. When when you look at even the voting um, um, record at the UN, um, we have been sided more. We have been siding more with um, with those countries, and we have also even um, not um, been. Um, we haven't even condemned even the actions of brutal governments like uh, governments of Myanmar, right, or people that will abuse um, the people. Uh, we have never been, you know, taken a side where we condemn, we condemn those, those situations. The idea that we can continue to show this, with, we can continue to show this cordial sort of uh, relationship with Russia, to me, it doesn't make sense, right? We should be in a position where we say we are opposed to the invasion of, of, of Ukraine and that we condemn the actions, but of course, we'll continue 
to engage and to find a solution to the situation of uh, of Ukraine Russia war. So I don't think our government has done and it's not just the Ramaphosa government. It's the ANC policy of failing to condemn uh the actions of uh, of very much um um you know human rights abuses and not being able to come out forcefully to say yes. we oppose a certain situations. So when it comes to asking me about the facts about the issue of the these arms that it's it's believed were sold to, to Russians. I'm saying that given the record of our government, uh, though of course the matter is still being investigated, but given how corrupt our system is, I wouldn't be surprised that there were people who were facilitating that process. I wouldn't be okay. surprised. All right. That. So, so now, now let, let me just give a factual basis that takes us back through a few generations of ANC policy. Let's start off with the Mandela administration, where mm-hmm. we had the butcher of Nigeria, Sunny Abacha, okay, who executed Ken Sarawiwa, a journalist who was reporting on uh, the exploitative practices of the oil companies that were devastating um, people in the regions where the, uh, the oil was being extracted. Um, Ken Sarawiwa was executed. Nelson Mandela stood up on every public platform, condemned the role of Sunny Abacha, called for um, then at the time, it was the Organization of African Unity to pull together and to actually isolate Nigeria. And what happened? The rest of the Organization of African Unity ended up pulling together and essentially putting Mandela on the sidelines. They were not prepared to go through with the process of actually taking a stance on this. And the reason why that becomes entirely ineffective is because everyone has those uh, small and yana skeletons, Pumi, that uh, uh, every country has those. And if you start this process of condemning, it doesn't work. Then we had the Tabo Mbeki administration. And Mbeki embarked on what the media started talking about as quiet diplomacy. The media are idiots. Okay. There's only two types of diplomacy. Okay. There's diplomacy and there's gunboat diplomacy. Because diplomacy, by definition, is quiet and it takes place behind the scenes. And and there's a lot of stuff that actually took place under Tabo Mbeki's uh, watch that actually quietly contributed to stuff that went on uh, around the world. And, you know, we, we can talk, uh, for example, about the entire role that South Africans played, including uh, Rolf Mayer and Cyril Ramaphosa, by the way, in brokering of mm-hmm. peace in uh, in the Irish conflict. Okay, so that's the second phase. Then we get to the Jacob Zuma era, where Jacob Zuma, his minister of foreign affairs, Maiten Kwane Mashabane, was uh, representing South Africa on the international front, agreed to the establishing of a no-fly zone over Libya because they had not bothered reading the fine print, but effectively sided with the United States in that. And what what was the end result of that? it ended up with the toppling of Gaddafi's government. Okay, so there's mm-hmm. no consistent pattern out here of the ANC taking sides, Pumlani. These are facts that I'm, uh, I'm putting out. Now, for the first time, I believe that international relations, uh, relations that we have right now under Naledi Pando is probably the most competent that we've had to date. And the, the very simple example I'll give of it is that if you look in terms of what went down in the situation in Sudan fairly recently, where you had the British who were only able to evict 
the ambassadorial personnel, personnel from, uh, from the battlefield. And meanwhile, you had South Africa, who was not only managing mm-hmm. to extradite the South African nationals who were trapped there. They took out Lesotho nationals. They took out Namibian nationals. South Africa was being truly a global player out there. So I'm saying all of this now as a background because the media consistently tries to portray what happens under various ANC administrations as a series of associations with Russia and with China. And that is absolutely not the case. Now, the questions that I asked around this Russian ship landing, okay, first question was what type of weaponry do we have that's compatible with Russian equipment and training? Okay, because our purportedly corrupt arms deal imported weapons from the West. All of the stuff that used to be manufactured by uh, by Danel with the backing of Arms Corps was all designed mm-hmm. to NATO spec. Okay, and it's incompatible. Mm-hmm. All right. So, second thing is, where do we have artillery stockpiles to be able uh, to be redeployed? If you there's a series of reports over the year. Look at Defense Web. It'll tell you that our artillery stocks have been looted and pillaged over the years. Okay, third thing is that we had joint training exercises with the Russians and the Chinese in February. If there was a time to do a transfer of arms, that's that would have been the easy way to do it, instead of having a ship basically dock in the dead of night. And I also make the point that if someone... Uh, uh, has uh, takes the trouble to go through the stuff that Denel actually manufactures now. What type of equipment do we have that could potentially in any way assist Russia in terms of the war that they are fighting right now? So, and the final thing is that this ambassador is the same ambassador who last year said that there was going to be a terrorist attack in Santon. Okay. And yeah, again, that's right. that caused market fluctuations. Okay. The guys are lying. Fuck. Let's be very clear about All right. this. Okay, and the net impact of what he did was to crash the rand. (laughs) All right, so then I have to ask two questions. First of all, Canton, I have no reason to doubt anything that you're saying is is probably more accurate than anything we're hearing from the stupid media because they never ask the right questions. But if it's true that, you know, we have nothing that Russia would want and that this doesn't look like it's a real thing, then why has our government not been better at communicating that this is bullshit? To the average person here, or in America, or in Russia. Who, who, well, who in our government is, is good at anything, really? Well, you said in the She's probably running yeah. the most competent international relations department and, we've and, had and in part, a long and, time. And, and, this, part of, and part it's of the reason for that blind, is... The one-eyed is I mean, right. But part of the reason for that is that Clayson Moniella is a former ETV-trained journalist because he worked for ETV under my watch. And he's a competent communicator, and he keeps the debate out in the open, and everything is there managed quite flawlessly. That so, happens to be the reason. Everyone else, you know, their communicators actually kind of just um and oh, like Karine Jean Jean Pierre. You know, she's. Uh, have you guys ever watched her? I think we're talking about a a, a lot of things <laughs> that all sound like. There's a, a really um, good uh, and <laughs> sane way of looking through all of this. But I think if there is one thing that I must agree completely with you, Kenton, is that this entire charade, which we have seen, 
with the American ambassador and the supposed apology, non-apology that has been mm-hmm. issued is that it was to crash the rand. But more than that, I think it's it's definitely an American ploy because if they are indeed looking at BRICS and looking at BRICS as being a terrible idea and an idea that moves a very big chunk of the world away from their dollar standard, then what they definitely don't want. And as we see South Africa veering more and more and getting deeper into the BRICS, and also Naledi Pando did say, you know, one of the reasons why it is worth uh, looking at the moving away from the dollar is because it I don't believe that her strengthening other currencies, as she said it, then it is in America's interest that South Africa goes down because we, South Africa being the most sophisticated economy on the continent, what the Americans don't want is they don't want China and Russia inheriting, inheriting this economy and what, and what it means and the voice that it has on the entire continent. And we see this, right? So if we see in the last OAU and how South Africa got everybody to eventually agree to and evicting the Israelis out of the, the meeting, South Africa still has a large voice on the continent and they don't want that. America doesn't want that. So this is in, it's within America's interest to crush us and crash our, our economy. Because uh, uh, we are a sophisticated economy. Uh, guys, be, yeah. just before we just before we swing fully to the economy, I just want to put in a last word in terms of this Russian um, docking thing. So Guy Lamb, who is a criminologist out at Stellenbosch, has written a very good piece yeah. at the conversation. I urge people to go out there and take a look at it. Okay, and the very simple thing that he says: the South African Minister of Defence, Tandi Modise, has stated that the Lady Art docked in Simonstown in December 2022 to deliver a shipment of ammunition for the South African National Defense Forces Special Forces Regiment that has been ordered prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he goes on to say, indeed, the Arms Control Committee's 2019 arms import report lists the permit approval for the import of 5 million rounds of Russian ammunition to South Africa. (laughs) Is Lawrence Mbata back from Russia, by the way? Mm. For yeah. those of you who don't know who but, Lawrence Butter anyway, is, he's okay, the head so, of our military and okay. he's on a, 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 he's the chief of our army and he's out there in Russia yeah, but on let, a military let's, let's just, visit. Guys, let's, let's just try and focus on this, okay? But I, I urge all of you who think that you know what's going on. Yes, we know we have a corrupt government. Yes, we know that the ANC will steal at every conceivable opportunity. But the idea that the ANC, A, has the capability of producing arms and B, that the Russians would actually need it is ludicrous. <laughs> well, we never know for the investigation. But all I'm saying is that given the record of what we know about our government, for learning, I'm saying I'm saying that Guy Lam has detailed this on the conversation. Go look at it. The, the problem is that when we operate on the basis of beliefs rather than trying to drill down into facts, we end up with this never-ending cycle. 
Let's my wait for the My facts are more important than my feelings. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying that let's wait for because they've appointed the judge, right? Or to do the investigation. Let's see and, what and comes. That's going to be that's going to be another Sondo commission. All of the stuff that Guy Lamb's talking right. about is in the public domain. We shouldn't be deferring you, to authority on everything. We have access to facts ourselves. We can do telling us. You're basically telling us, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but you're saying don't believe this U.S. ambassador. He's talking complete nonsense, and he's trying to tank the rand. Exactly. He has tanked it. What do you mean he's trying to tank it? Have you seen the red dollar exchange? Okay, no, that's. I think that's fascinating because honestly, this you know this is again why these insights on on this show are are so varied and so useful um, because I think we do tend to accept the, 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 the mainstream media narrative way too often without actually investigating the first principles. And, and Pumlani, I don't know if this is uh, as shocking to you as it is to me, but what Canton's saying is pretty bloody earth shattering. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, it could be some that is very damaging uh, to, um, to, to the country. Um, but you know, I think for, for, for South Africa going forward, I just think, I think messaging has to be, um, uh, correct. It has to be, it has to be right, especially on a global stage on how we would position our, ourselves. Of course, I mean, the idea that there will always be some foreign interventions or people trying to tank the economy for their own purpose. That is going to happen. It's, it's, it's how the international system works. You know, you always have people who are trying to discredit you as, as a country. But so long as you take the stances and the lines that are principles that are consistent and that are strategic as well, that is that, that that's going to help. So uh, we shall right. see how this thing evolves uh, over the next month or so. We have a self-serving president. Who's going to take us all down with him at this stage? We do. We have a self-serving president. And I think it, it, it also serves him for all of us to look at him and think that he is weak or he is, he is surrounded by all of these forces within the ANC. Therefore, he can't make any moves. I don't believe any of that. I think he knows exactly what it is that he's doing. And what he is doing is his self-enriching. And at this point, the Americans have called his called his bullshit on it, and he is now preparing to save himself. Can I quickly uh, just turn our attention, since you brought up America, and we can never avoid the elephant in the room, any comments on the Durham report, which has just come out? I mean, this is really a very damning indictment of the FBI, of the Hillary Clinton campaign, and kind of makes it look like Donald Trump was telling the truth all along about an active campaign in the deep state to prevent him from becoming president, and then once he was president, to try and remove him by hook or by crook. I mean, this is beyond Watergate. It's beyond Watergate. Watergate, at least Nixon, hired outside actors to go and break into the Democrats' offices in the Watergate building. In this case, the FBI, the state itself under Barack Obama, was put to work against an opposition candidate. I mean, why is this not making more noise? Because this goes back to what we were just talking about and what uh, Pumlani was touching on, where he was saying that the optics need to be right in terms of the rest of the world. Right now, the war that's being fought in uh, in the Ukraine, which goes directly back to what's going on in the U.S., it is a war where the media has been weaponized in order to push particular narratives. And I can't say this strongly enough. 
the entire way in which the media has been reporting on a whole range of things all fundamentally goes back to pushing a deep state narrative that is designed to push out specific people. We spoke um, uh, on this show, guys, uh, over the past several weeks. We have said the divide in the U.S. right now is not between the Republicans and the Democrats. It's between the Trump Republicans and the deep state Republicans. And now we've got the second follow-up along the same lines within the Democratic Party, where you have Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is now running for president, who is effectively now the Trump of the Democratic Party, because he's saying a lot of things that uh, that Trump is saying. And the deep state now is going to be on a quest to take out Robert Kennedy as well. So they're now fighting two battles because you have two people who are singing from the same hymn sheet and talking about the dangers of the American deep state. So the Durham report in of itself doesn't matter. What actually matters is who ends up getting into the White House. And right now, I promise you, the deep state is going out of their way to ensure that Biden gets another term. And they want Biden to get another term because it means that they can continue to do exactly the stuff that they have been doing up until now. Yeah, look, for me, I think I'll be short here. The reason why was your question, Garrett, was why is this is not earth-shattering or making big headlines? Well, it's because it was the the governmental system um, doing it on the on the on the Republicans and and to Trump it at worst. So if it were the other way around, if this thing was aimed at Democrats, then I'm telling you the mainstream media would have made a lot of noise because a lot of noise because largely the mainstream media is very much something that is a mouthpiece of the Democratic Party in the United States. It's anti-Republican, it's anti-Trump, it's it's anti-conservative. Political movement is always demonized and thrown under the bus by the machines of the of of the media that is largely democratic or or, or is run by people of Democratic Party and even the journalists they are more pro Democratic Party so it's not a surprising thing that it's not a big thing as you're saying I'm not surprised by that because anyway the mainstream media is always shooting down on the Republicans or the conservative movement now that's my observation. Okay. For me, you got the closing remarks on this While one. we yap ourselves about mainstream media <laughs> being an agent of... Look, I think... This defending platform is not the mainstream media. <laughs> <laughs> While we yap ourselves. But I think we've spoken about this before, and I think maybe this is a good place to end the, this show, is it's important to look at more than just what is in front of our eyes. It's important to be... A, mm-hmm. In order to be able to decide to decipher what it is that's going on you're not just going to get it from you know the the regular sources it's not going to be from clayson's twitter feed it's not going to be from the twitter feed of uh, the sg you know Figilembalola. it's got to be from from all sides and you and then you've got to consider not just what's happening today but what has happened in the past and where we are going to and how, and, you know, again, you know, we talk a lot on this show about how South Africa is not just a small island at the toe, a small piece at the toe of Africa, but really very connected to the rest of the world and still has quite a huge role, I think, on the continent as well. And so is often going to be the grass that suffers when the elephants fight. All righty, everybody. Sure. 
busy show. We've jumped all over the place. I hope it's been, um, I hope you feel like the grass that's been suffering while the elephants fight this morning. We will be back with another burning platform next week, Thursday. Pumlani, it's always good to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Canton, great to see you. And Pumi, as always, we'll see you next week, everybody. Ciao. Bye bye.